This episode was made possible by our incredible patrons who faithfully support the work of amplifying the voices of spiritual abuse survivors. We are an extremely small team comprised of just two families with a passion for stories and image bearers. We committed early on to not monetizing any of the stories and rely solely on the donations of our Patreon community to operate. If you value this work and are able to contribute, you can join for as little as $5 a month. Another way you can support us is by following, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It only takes a moment, but it has a big impact on our reach. Thank you for daring to listen. Before we begin, we want to make the listener aware that this story contains adult content related to suicidal ideation. If you are struggling with suicidal thoughts, you are not alone. You can place a free and confidential call to the National Suicide Prevention Hotline. We've linked the number in our bio. You are worthy of fighting for, and you are loved. For Elle, her church in Fort Worth, Texas, was more than just a place to go on Sunday. This is where she found the grace of God and a community that she valued and cared for. It was an anchor for her, and she loved it. But it was also the same place where she began to doubt herself, her health, and God's unconditional love for her. She met lifelong friends at this church, but also encountered leaders who stirred up so much turmoil in her life that it caused her to question her own self-worth. Elle's story is a reminder that we can find beauty and goodness in our faith institutions, but those qualities will quickly be eroded if what we teach and how we interact with others brings shame, fear, and hurt. I'm Jay Coyle, and this is the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. I am all about blessed subtraction. There, there is a pile of dead bodies behind the Mars Hill bus. <laughs> and by God's grace, it'll be a mountain by the time we're done. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. You either get on the bus or you get run over by the bus. Those are the options. But the bus ain't gonna stop. All right. Welcome back. And we are excited to have another guest here. We are excited to welcome Elle and her story and hear more about her life. Elle is going to talk to us today about her time at an Acts 29 and an SBC affiliated church in uh, the Dallas Fort Worth area, specifically in Fort Worth. So, Elle, thank you so much for joining us and thank you for uh, the willingness to share your story. How are you doing today? I'm doing all right. Um, I was telling Jay this before we started recording, but I am a grad student and I just finished up midterms. So I'm a little tired <laughs> from that, um, but otherwise doing pretty good. Well, that's great. So I wanted to start off because I, I find, you know, we've talked to you several times and, and gotten to know you and your story. And I found it really interesting how you came to faith because mm -hmm. it was a little bit later in life. Mm -hmm. So can you talk to us about that? Yeah. So my mom was a refugee from Vietnam. And when she came to the United States with her family, they were taken in by a local Catholic church. 
that really provided for them, you know, helps them um, get on their feet, find housing, pay for food and and other kinds of supplies for a while and, and stuff like that. And so my mom grew up with a really strong affinity for the Catholic Church. She considers herself Catholic. I think just has a lot of respect and admiration for the Catholic Church. I don't think that that necessarily translates into a super strong personal faith because I was definitely not raised in what anybody would really consider a religious household. My biological dad died shortly after I was born, but I was raised by my stepdad who came into the picture very shortly after. He is an atheist. And so growing up, we went to Catholic Mass on Christmas and Easter, but that was pretty much it. We never really talked about God at home or faith or anything like that. And so I sort of considered myself culturally Catholic the way that a lot of people do until I was in high school. And then when I was in high school, I had a friend who went to, you know, an evangelical Protestant church, asked me if I wanted to go to her youth group with her. And I thought to myself, yeah, I'm religious. (laughs) I can go to youth group. That's not weird. And so I started going to youth group with her. And that was the first time that somebody really preached the gospel to me, or at least in a way that I understood. I fell asleep during a lot of those Catholic masses. So I don't want to say that they never preached the gospel there, but it certainly never really connected with me. I just found it so beautiful, just the idea that there was a God who loved me enough that even though I did a lot of bad things and committed a lot of sins. He not only forgave me for those sins, but sent his son to pay the price for them and die on the cross for me. And so that was when I was saved, converted, gave my life over to Jesus, whatever theological phrase you want to use. Uh, whatever, right? Yeah. Whatever you want to use, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. And so that was my freshman year of high school. So I know we talked and, and you spent uh, your time in high school on the West Coast mm-hmm. and then eventually you ended up in Texas mm-hmm. and you land at the, this particular church. Mm-hmm. Walk us through. How did you end up at this church? Like what led you to it? What, what attracted you to it? Yeah. So um, for the rest of my high school years, I um, or I should say towards the end of my high school years, I started to struggle with my faith a little bit. Um, I had a falling out with my girlfriend who had first brought me to church, um, and so I wasn't really going anymore. And, you know, not being in a Christian family, I didn't really have that sort of familial infrastructure. And so I started to really struggle. I got into Texas Christian University. Go Horn Fox. I decided that I wanted to go. Um, they gave me a pretty hefty scholarship, which really helped. Um, but also, I just had this idea that like, oh, if I go to a Christian school in the Bible Belt, then I'm obviously going to be able to reconnect with Jesus, which is very funny in retrospect because everybody who goes to TCU says that the C is in quotation marks, and I definitely find that to be true. But at the time, I didn't know that. But despite the fact that TCU in a lot of ways is not really a Christian school, the Lord was just really kind to me, and he very immediately surrounded me with some older friends who uh, went to this church and who just really met me where I was and loved me really well, invited me to go to church with them. So I went one of my first Sundays that I was in college. Like I really didn't church hop a bunch, try out a bunch of different churches. I think I might have gone to one other one that I thought was okay. And then they brought me to this one and I was just very immediately hooked, you know, growing up, going to Catholic Mass, which is obviously its own thing. And then the church that I sort of attended off and on in high school was just very, I don't want to say bland, but I think that it's just sort of what you imagine a lot of sort of low budget Protestant evangelical churches to be like. You know, worship service is one white dude with an acoustic guitar. Sermon is another slightly older white dude just talking about 
I don't, I couldn't even tell you. But so I got to this church and they did not have their own building yet. Um, so we were meeting in the basement of this event venue in downtown Fort Worth. They have this huge band with really charismatic, emotionally moving music, you know, electric guitars and the drums. And Pastor Jay, who was and is the lead pastor there, is just a very charismatic and very well-spoken pastor. And I had just never really experienced that before. And so I I was super hooked from, from the first day that I attended. I love how you said uh, the common denominator was white dudes. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, you talked about Pastor Jay mm-hmm. and how he actually preached a couple sermons early on in your time there that were really impactful, mm-hmm. especially one about depression. Yeah. Talk to us about that. Yeah. So he gave um, a couple of sermons on mental illness that I think do a really good job of laying out what the church's theology around mental illness was. Um, One was pretty early on while I was there, um, and it was more focused on anxiety specifically. And to be honest, I don't really remember that much of what he said in the sermon, but I remember afterwards that he had his wife come on stage um, and they did a little bit of a Q&A because I guess she has struggled with anxiety for a lot of her adult life. And so he was just asking her some stuff about that. That, you know, how do you deal with your anxiety? You know, where do you see God in it? And I remember her telling her story and her saying that when she first started to develop symptoms of anxiety and first started to really struggle with it, she just spent all of this time asking God to cure her of her anxiety and to just heal her essentially. And I remember her saying, and you know, God didn't cure me of my anxiety, but what he did give me was more of him. Like I got more of God because of my anxiety. And and listen, that that is a really beautiful thing, right? Like it is so beautiful and wonderful that we love a God who meets us in our anxieties, in our fears, in our depression, and who loves us and who comforts us. But they really set the stage for this theology that really there's nothing to be done about mental illness. If anything, it's a blessing because when you experience anxiety or depression, you lean really hard into your relationship with God. And so you, it's almost this weird, like suffering superiority complex where it's like, oh, I suffer so much because of my anxiety and my depression. And so I have just this incredible faith compared to everybody else because I lean so heavily on God in my mental illness. And so that was that sermon. And then a few years later, he gave a sermon where he talked specifically about depression. And at the time, I found that sermon incredibly moving because I had started to develop some pretty serious depression, um, and it was something that I was really struggling with. And I remember that he said generally to the congregation, you know, if you believe that people who experience depression have depression because they have less faith in you, uh, you're totally wrong. He said, do you not realize that people with depression have twice the faith that you do because they need Jesus just to get up in the morning? And at the time, I found that incredibly validating and just really comforting to not hear somebody, you know, say that people who have depression or who have anxiety have it because they have less faith in God, but instead actually saying the opposite, that these people have more faith in God because they need God more. And I also remember him saying in that sermon that medication is just a Band-Aid. And I think that he kind of tried to pretend that he was sympathetic towards it. He said, you know, like, I understand that 
you know, sometimes you you feel the need to to take medication to deal with the symptoms of depression. But listen to me, it's nothing more than a Band-Aid. It's not going to heal. Only Jesus heals. And so as I was living through a really serious time of mental illness in my life, I just had this theology in my mind that I didn't need to see a therapist. I didn't need to see a doctor. I didn't need to take any kind of antidepressants because in fact, actually my depression was a blessing because it meant that I quote unquote had more Jesus compared to people who did not have depression. The question I have there is, you know, I mean, how did you approach Jesus with that then? Like in your own interactions, what was that like? I mean, to be honest, it was just a lot of guilt because the thing that a lot of people don't understand about depression is that it's not just like feeling super sad all the time. Like it's not this constant sense of sadness or grief or or suffering even. A lot of times it's just numbness and lack of mental or emotional or physical energy to do anything. And so a lot of times when I was experiencing a really serious depressive episode, like it took everything in me just to breathe and to occasionally get out of bed and to, I mean, go to class and just like exist as a person. And so a lot of times I I didn't have what I felt like the energy to prayer, to pray. I didn't I I just didn't have it in me to try to even cry out to God because I all of my mental space was taken up by just staying alive. And so on the one hand, I would try to tell myself that, you know, having depression was this great blessing because it meant that I had more of Jesus, but I actually felt like I had a lot less of Jesus because I didn't have the energy to to pray to him or to or to cry out to him or to or to I mean read scripture was definitely off the table. Honestly, it was just a lot of guilt and shame that I was quote unquote supposed to be leaning on God in this time and I was supposed to have um, an even stronger faith than everybody else in my life, but in reality I I was barely checked in because I just I just didn't have it in me. I was barely surviving. That's really confusing because you're like, on one Mm -hmm. hand, like, wait a second, I have a double relationship. Like I have all of this, (laughs) (laughs) this wealth of relationship that I don't actually connect with or feel because I'm so buried right now. Yeah. I'm so sorry. That's just so confusing. Yeah. And just really painful and, and really isolating because I didn't know a lot of other people who lived with depression. And so even I look back and so many of my friends at that time, you know, loved me really well. I'm still really close to a lot of those people, but they were just very ill-equipped to deal with my mental illness. And so a lot of times they just sort of said a lot of the same things that Pastor Jay would say. And so it, it was just so incredibly isolating to have all of these people telling me that, you know, like God loves me so much and God meets me in my depression. And to to feel too embarrassed to say, actually, I I I don't feel more God. I don't feel like my relationship with God is any stronger than it was in the past. If anything, I feel more disconnected from him because I just live in this fog. And it made it really, really hard to 
to talk to anybody about what I was experiencing or, or to try to seek any kind of help. Yeah, it also isolates isolates you, but it really isolates everyone yeah. who heard that message. And so now it's like, you know, I, I picture it as there's a lot of shame now if you come forward and say you're struggling with something to your your fellow church, you know, members or friends in church because you're not believing enough. That's what what I hear when you say that. Is that a fair statement? <sighs> yeah. And and well, I I would quibble with not that I wasn't believing enough because because the whole idea was that oh these people believe more and I was just drinking so much of their Kool-Aid at the time that I definitely believed that but there was a very there was a very stark difference between the theology that I was telling myself and the things that I was trying to tell myself and my actual lived experience and I was trying to tell myself that I had a stronger faith because of my depression but my lived experience was that I felt so isolated from God and from everybody in my life so you, you're you're at the church, you are meeting friends, and you know you're you're enjoying your time there. You know, in hindsight, you know that there was a big red flag, but mm-hmm. at the time you didn't. Yes, you know, you're, you're growing, you're you're going to things, and you end up taking a mission trip to Brazil. Mm-hmm. And this is where you meet Pastor A, right, mm-hmm. on this mission trip. Mm-hmm. And so, talk to us about Pastor A. Who was he? Uh, what was his role at the church? Yeah. So what happened on that mission trip? What happened on that mission trip? So a little bit more of background is just that I like kind of started to develop my depression a little bit late in high school, like around my senior year. And then when I first came to TCU, honestly, my freshman year was just uh, this incredible year of just growth and a lot of joy. I like I honestly, towards the end of that year, had started to convince myself that I had been cured of my depression, that that was something that I was no longer living with um, because I really didn't experience much of it my freshman year. You know, I just really loved being in college, honestly. Um, I loved being on my own and I loved going to football games and I loved taking all these fun classes. And then my sophomore year started and I started to feel the effects of my depression again. And at first I just sort of told myself, you know, it's just the sophomore slump. Everything's not as shiny and new and fun as it was your freshman year. But as more time went on, I started to come to terms with the fact that it wasn't just a sophomore slump that I was starting to experience depression again. And, you know, hearing these sermons about how God really meets us in our suffering and in our mental illness and that I just need to lean on God harder, I decided to go on this mission trip because I had never been on one before. And I just hear all these stories of these people who go on these mission trips and they have just these incredible experiences and they they see God move and work in ways that they never had before. And just describing this kind of like emotional and spiritual high that I just really sought. You know, I think that there's something in all of us that seeks those kinds of of emotional and spiritual highs. Um, but especially when I was experiencing that depression and I just felt so low all the time, it just sounded really appealing. And so they did this yearly, you know, week-long spring break mission trip to Brazil to partner with another Acts 29 church in Brazil, which, I mean, side note, like, we ought to stop doing these, like, week-long mission trips. They're, they're, just, they're just a bad idea. Amen. Stop. <laughs> just, just, just stop. And so, and I, yeah, I had to like fundraise all this money. I think the trip cost me like almost $3,000. And I, I mean, honestly, 
like knowing what I do about other mission trips, I think that this one was a little bit better than most. It's not like they sent a bunch of teenagers to build a house or something. But I mean, I just look back on the amount of money that I had to raise for that trip. And I just think about all the good that actually could have been done with that money instead of being spent on a round trip flight to Rio de Janeiro. And it it just depresses me. Uh. But anyways, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so I go on this trip and this is where I meet Pastor A. And so he was actually at that time, he was not yet a pastor. I just I just remember that. He was a deacon and he was in the process um, of being confirmed to be an elder at the church. And I remember their eldership process, I don't know what a lot of it looks like behind the scenes, but I know that usually they will announce to the church when somebody is being considered for eldership, um, and there will be a period of time where uh, members of the church are allowed to um, give any sort of feedback, you know, talk to the other elders about, yeah, we think he'll be a great elder for XYZ reason, or actually I have XYZ concerns about him. And so I remember that it was in that period of time when they had announced that he was a candidate for eldership, but he had not yet been confirmed. Pastor A um, had joined the church about a year ago, shortly after Mars Hill had closed its doors. And I did not know that. I didn't even know what Mars Hill was at the time. And truly for a very long time, all I knew about Mars Hill was that it was the church that Pastor A used to work at. I have this really weird memory of it being Good Friday. And I was talking to, it was the Good Friday after that mission trip. And so I went to dinner with some of my friends from that trip. And we were talking about wearing black on on Good Friday. And I remember somebody saying, yeah, um, you'll always see Pastor A and his family. He has five kids. Um, you'll always see them wearing all black on Good Friday because that's something that they always did at Mars Hill. They would always wear all black, all black on Good Friday. And I remember saying, what's Mars Hill? And they all they said was, oh, it's the church that that Pastor A used to work at. And I was like, oh, okay. For any of you who know anything about Mars Hill or who listen to the podcast, I mean, he really embodied everything about that church. He was so abrasive and he had like all these tattoos and he just had this really aggressive, like punk rock attitude. But honestly, that like really drew me to him. Um, I thought he was really funny. I liked that he didn't act like what I had sort of envisioned pastors normally acted like. You know, he wasn't just sort of like a boring old man. <laughs> he was really funny and he was really sharp. At the time, I kind of liked that he just like wasn't afraid to push people's buttons because I really like you hear people from Marcel talk about, you know, the sort of like punk rock countercultural attitude that they had. And I was really into that. Um, and, and he brought a lot of that to our church. And so I liked that. Yeah, that he was kind of rude sometimes and that he um, pushed people's buttons and that he wasn't afraid to, to talk about controversial things. So that was where I met him, and we spent a lot of time together on that trip, and I just really formed an attachment to him, which was the first time in my life that I had really ever had a relationship with a pastor. I was never that close to Pastor Jay, um, and I never really talked to any of the pastors at the church that I went to often on in high school, and so spent a lot of time um, on that trip talking to Pastor A and learning about all of his weird theology about demons, which he was super obsessed with. I remember him telling me that uh, Beyonce was possessed by a demon, 
he's really convinced that Sasha Fierce, um, which is her like stage persona, is a demon. Um, he used to love to talk about this. This is he, like Illuminati oh, yeah. level oh. stuff here. We're like really deep diving. <laughs> oh, Jonna. It's so, it's so unreal. And I just like, I, I, I give myself a lot of grace because I was very young. But not just, Beyonce. She is off limits. Yeah. Oh, he would always, because I remember that there, he was talking about this and there was another girl on our trip who like had been a dancer growing up and she was trying to explain to us like, no, it's <laughs> normal for people who are performers what? to have like an onstage persona that they sort of like take on. And he said, yes, I understand that. But if you read the things that Beyonce says about Sasha Fierce, she says, you know, I call on Sasha Fierce before I perform and Sasha Fierce can do things that I can't. <laughs> It's so funny to me now. What? I haven't said any of this out loud in a very long time. And I'm just like really realizing how dumb it sounds when I say it out loud. I'm um, just like imagining you all like sitting outside on a missions trip around a campfire. Yep. Hearing about yep. the demon, Sasha yep. Fierce. Yeah. Yeah. And then I don't know if you guys remember this because this was so many years ago at this point. But do you remember there was that one picture of Beyonce that like was floating around the Internet and it was just her like mid like aggressive dance move. And so she had like a bunch of chins and she just like didn't look super great. And I remember there being a whole thing about like Beyonce's team trying to like scrub that photo from the Internet because it just wasn't a very flattering picture of her. And he was like, yeah, she's trying to scrub the Internet of that picture because you can tell that that's <laughs> Sasha Fierce. It's the D. It's oh not my gosh. Well, that's wild. <laughs> yeah, and he's serious about all this too. So like he serious. believes it. Uh, yeah, yes. That's... So I feel so like serious. that like yeah, I, I cannot emphasize perfectly enough how encapsulates he took this. how much he was like Mark Driscoll. I could totally any oh day of the gosh. week you could see Mark Driscoll saying something bizarre like that, and everyone's just like, Yeah. Yes. Yep. 100 percent we will obviously get to, yeah, we'll get to the Mars Hill stuff later, I know. But when the Mars Hill podcast first came out, my friends who have also left the church and I used to talk about it all the time. And we would say all the time, like, oh, Mark Driscoll was the blueprint for Pastor mm -hmm. A. Like, like Pastor A very clearly just learned how to be a pastor at the feet of Mark Driscoll. And then despite the fact that that church crashed and burned he still came to our church and was like i'm just gonna do it well, all over again i mean it's not every day we get a pastor that was saying that beyonce has a demon in her but <laughs> i would say <laughs> there are a lot of pastors that just went and continued doing things very similar to mark driscoll yeah. and hence why we have a podcast <laughs> Yeah. Oh, he also got another like insane thing that he told me. <laughs> I haven't said so many of this out loud. Honestly, it's so long. I like as the words are leaving my mouth, I realize how insane they sound. But again, like I was so young and I was so impressionable and I really just like swallowed all of it. But I remember him telling me because some of the other people on the trip um, had tattoos. He had a bunch of tattoos. So we were talking about tattoos. I didn't have any tattoos at the time, but I was thinking about getting some. And he straight faced told me that I should not get tattoos until I am married because my husband should be able to like approve of any tattoos that I want to get. And I was like, that's ridiculous. And I think I even started to say like that is sexist but he said no no it's not sexist he said my wife approved of all of the tattoos that i got and i said yeah pastor a you got married when you were 19 like so you probably didn't have tattoos until after y'all were married 
I'm 20 already, so I'm already older than you than you were when you got married, and I have no idea if I'm ever going to get married, and I it's it's my body. Like I want to I want to I want to get tattoos. And there were other girls on the trip who were single who had tattoos, and he would like shake his head and be like, "Yeah, like all of those girls, like their husbands are going to have to marry them with those tattoos." Yep. They are. If they ever get married, their husband's going to have to be okay with the tattoo that's already on their body. With the tattoos. I'm sure that's the top of their list of things that they're concerned about is the way that they present themselves (laughs) looks-wise and not actually who they are as a human. That's not who you're marrying. Just the object. Yes. 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 And of course, all these girls had like Hebrew tattoos <laughs> and other like like Christian <laughs> tattoos. It's not like they had like, I don't know, like freaking like Harry have Styles Sasha on Fierce their on their forearm. What if, uh, yeah, what if they had Sasha Fierce? What would that be? Would oh, they be a demon? Oh, we'll, we'll get bad. to the exorcisms later, but that that absolutely would have been cause for an exorcism. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay, oh, yeah. okay, so so age. So you, you start this. You, I think you mentioned you kind of saw Pastor A is more of like a spiritual father figure for you. Yes, and so you you start to spend in church settings more time with him, and mm-hmm. he starts to kind of influence some things in your life. Talk to us about his influence. I know uh, over your baptism, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in your school, and then also with your your own family. Talk to us a little bit about those those things. So um, the first sort of big thing that you touched on was the baptism. Um, So having been raised culturally Catholic, culturally Catholic, I was baptized as an infant and I never really saw any issue with that. Um, I didn't know that at Protestant churches, um, you don't usually get baptized until you're an adult. But, you know, of course, there are always people who get baptized on mission trips. And so I saw that happening when I was like, what's this about? And Pastor A would say, well, you know, the Bible says that you should repent and be baptized. And so we believe that you should not be baptized until you are old enough to understand repentance um, and you repent of your sins and you get baptized. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, you know, whatever. I guess that makes sense. And he looked at me and he said, have you been baptized? And I said, ah, yeah, you know, my, my mom is Catholic. And so she baptized me when I was born. And he said, well, that doesn't count. I was I was so taken aback. I said, "What do you mean it doesn't count? There was a there was a priest who like said a blessing over me and, and, and baptized me. I don't know what you mean by that doesn't count." And he says, "Well, the Bible says that you have to repent and be baptized. And so if you had some old dude in a robe sprinkle some water on you when you were an infant, that's not baptism. That's just some old dude in a robe sprinkling some water on you." And I said, "Okay, I hear where you're coming from." But, you know, I just really think that if I chose to get rebaptized, which he had a lot of issue with me calling it rebaptism, but I said, I just feel like if I choose to get rebaptized as an adult, you know, my mom will be really upset. Um, she doesn't really care that I go to a Protestant church, but I think that her baptizing me was really meaningful to her. And so I think that if I choose to get baptized as an adult, she might just like be offended and be hurt. And so I don't really want to do that. And he said, well, if you're only not getting baptized because you think it'll hurt your mom's feelings, then you're idolizing your mom because you're prioritizing your mom's feelings over biblical commands to be baptized once you've repented of sin. And I was just like, oh, oh my God. Well, okay. Like, I don't want to idolize anybody. And so like, okay, like I, like, I guess uh, that just really set the tone um, for my relationship with AJ. It was just like that all the time. And so, you know, I did 
I called my mom and I told her that I wanted to be baptized and I explained why. And she seemed a little bit hurt about it, but she was nice about it. She said, you know, if this is meaningful to you, then that's okay, which was really nice of her to say. And so I did get baptized. But the ironic part is that I didn't get baptized because I felt like it was the biblical thing to do. Like Pastor A said, I got baptized because I had started to really idolize him um, and his opinion of me and the way that he saw me. And, you know, like you said, Jay, I really saw him as as a spiritual father. And I really just kind of like accepted everything that he said. You know, I didn't really have much of a theological foundation. Um, this was somebody who had like got out of his way to to develop a relationship with me and care for me. I just trusted him. And so I said, okay, like if you think this is important, then I guess I'll do it, which again, just idolizing him and his approval of me um, and not, you know, the Bible and, and what the Bible says about baptism. Things for the most part just just continued in that fashion where every time I was having a hard time with something, I would come to him to talk to him about it because I really loved him and I really respected him and and I, you know, wanted to talk to him about stuff as you do when you have a relationship with somebody. And it and it was just like every time I, it was my fault. And every time I was a sinner, you know, uh, he would ask me, oh, are you going to XYZ church event? And I would say, oh, you know, I can't. I, I have midterms or I have a big paper. And, and so I, I got to do that. And he again would say, well, are you idolizing your schoolwork? He used to tell the joke all the time where he would say, yeah, you know, um, I know that God is definitely going to ask me for my GPA when I get to heaven. So yeah, it makes sense that you're that you're concerned about your grades. If I didn't live my life exactly the way that he thought I should be living it, that I was a sinner and I was in the wrong and I was unrepentant and and everything was wrong with me all the time. And yeah, and the stuff with my family, I mean, I honestly look back and I cannot believe that he approached some of these conversations with just the the complete and total lack of compassion that he did. I have a, I have a question real quick. Yes. Do you feel like he did this with everyone or was it specific so do you feel like he took a special like he was more invested in anybody that was single in this space I'm wondering if he oh, felt that's a good question sorry to throw that curveball in there but I'm just listening to you and I'm like oh he's no, like oh there's not a man in her life that she's submitting to so I guess I'll step in I'm wondering if that was like a culture within that space. We've heard that a lot. Like, and not that there was something like nefarious yeah. romantically, but that he's just like, no, 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 no. No, I want to make it very yeah. clear that th none of that Just was that happening. like, oh, she's not under male headship. So I'll be that for now in the interim. I think yes and no. Um, I will say that he did kind of treat everybody like this. Um, I would talk to other men at the church and they would be like, yeah, that sounds about right. But I don't think that you're wrong. I think that there was a lot of that as well. I think that that is why he took a particular interest in wanting to, quote unquote, disciple me, be a, a spiritual father to me. Yeah, I, I would definitely say that that is true. Again, he did treat everybody this way. I was talking to my friend about this the other day because I said something. I, I was just trying to give some grace to somebody that we went to church with who you know, just used to make a lot of excuses for him. And I said, you know, we were all really young and, and we were really drinking the Kool-Aid and, and we didn't know that there was something wrong with the way that he was treating us. And she said, no, Elle, you're wrong. She said, don't you remember that we had a name for what it was called whenever Pastor A would do this to us? Like we would call it like 
like getting Pastor Aid, which like doesn't make sense when you're using the nickname, but it'd be like, like if every time I talked to Jonna, Jonna would just like emotionally berate me, I would go to my friends and I'd be like, yeah, I just got Jonna'd. Like that's what we would call it. Like it was a, it was a known thing that if you talk to Pastor A, he was probably just going to emotionally berate you. It was normalized. Yes. Super normalized. And again, like it was just part of his whole like punk rock countercultural attitude that I really bought into. And so the tough love was it's tough really, love. Yes. Speak truth boldly yes. in love. Yes. And he's fighting demons. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Pastor A demon hunter. <laughs> oh, he um he ca- called himself a traveling exorcist because oh, he used no. to like churches like other Acts 29 churches I'm assuming would like consider him some sort of like spiritual warfare expert and so whenever <laughs> they were having problems with somebody in their church who they thought was possessed by a demon they would call him and he would come to their church and he would perform exorcisms that was so he was a he was a traveling exorcist i'm sorry this is like not horrifying oh but a slightly comical but also horrifying no i so appreciate honestly y'all's reaction because <laughs> i remember when i first moved to dc and i was like hanging out with some people in my program i could not tell you why this came up, but I told them that I had been exercised and they um, responded the same way that y'all are responding. Um, but I was just like, well, they're not Christians. So like, what do they know? But it's really validating that like other believers are like, what the hell? Yeah. I mean, in this part of the conversation, we're laughing. I don't know that we'll be laughing when we get to that part of your story. <laughs> but I mean, sometimes all you can do is laugh. Yeah. But the saddest thing is that he's like serious, right? Oh, so serious. Not a joke. This is his jam. Like he is doing it. Yes. So I interrupted you with that question, though. You were mentioning like how he was engaging in conversations with you about your family. Yes. Yes. So um, I, so it's important that I talk about the fact that my, mom and I went to counseling together a few years ago. Um, and we, our relationship right now is the best that it has ever been. Um, but we really struggled for a really long time. Um, we started to fight a lot when I was in high school. Um, and then things were really brutal when I was in college. We, I mean, we would just fight all the time. I try to call her once a week and I, oh God, like those Sunday phone calls, like we would just scream at each other and I would just sob and I would just like, then of course just like lie in my bed depressed for days because I just had this like huge fight with my mom um, and, and things were so bad. And it was, and every time, this would happen, I would try to talk to Pastor A about it. And he just said the same things over and over again, which is you are her child. The Bible says that you have to respect your parents. It says that you have to be obedient to your parents. And really, there's no reason that you should be getting this upset over anything that your mom says to you, because we know that God is a perfect parent and God loves you. So why are you allowing this other person who is not even another believer to have this kind of power over you? So it was on the one hand saying that she should have all the power in the relationship because she was my mom, but at the same time saying that I shouldn't let her have this kind of power over my emotions, which was like another thing that he was really into. I mentioned that he would like emotionally berate us all the time and I would often leave these conversations that I had with him in tears. And I remember one time 
I like had some conversation with him on a Sunday morning and then, you know, whatever the conversation ended and I like kind of turned away and then I saw one of my friends and I was talking to her and she said, oh, are you okay? You're crying. And I said, oh yeah, you know, Pastor A made me cry. He always does that. And he was still standing nearby and he turned over and he said, I didn't make you cry. And I, and I wasn't even saying it accusatorily because at the time I was still just in so deep that it didn't bother me that he made me cry all the time. I just thought that that's what it was like to have a relationship with a pastor. And he said, I spoke truth to you and you chose to start crying. Like that, that was another big thing for him was that like, it is always a Christian's responsibility to speak truth and you are never responsible for whatever their reaction is. And this is something that he would also say all the time whenever I would talk about my family, because, you know, my family are not Christians and he would like, you know, around holidays and stuff. I would talk about how I wasn't really looking forward to going home because, you know, I had this tough relationship with my mom. And he was like, why aren't you excited to go home and share the gospel with them? I mean, you have the best news ever to share with them. And you're telling me that that you're not excited to to go home to them. I mean, don't you don't you tell them about Jesus? And I was like And through all this time, you're still really struggling with depression, right? Yes. Yes. And I'm a college student. So I'm like studying with exams. And also I was involved in a million different things. I was on, you know, the exec board for my sorority. I was working part-time at this internship. Like I, I had a thousand things going on and, and I'm struggling with depression. Um, and he is always just like, what's wrong with you? And yeah, he just used to really lay into me about the fact that I wasn't doing a better job of trying to evangelize to my family. Like he he would be like, you, you were just idolizing their opinion of you if you're not always telling them about Jesus. And and I would say, well, okay, like, yes, of course I want my family to know Jesus. Like uh, he's he's the best thing that's ever happened to me. But like these things are delicate. Like, I'm not just going to shove Jesus down their throats. Like, I don't want to upset them. And then, of course, this is where he would always come in with, well, you can't upset them. Like, it's your responsibility to tell them the truth. And if they choose to respond in anger, that's on them. That's not on you. And so he's basically telling me to pick fights with my family and then tell them that they're not allowed to get upset at me and then tell myself that I'm not allowed to be upset if they're upset at me. There's a through line here of this idea that we can choose our emotions. Yes. That's just like not reality. Like you, if you have that, there's something very disconnected if you can just like pick and choose when you feel sad or when you feel mad. Like those things are actually in us and usually are indicators like, I believe God created us to have those as like first line, like, oh, now I need to ask a question. Why do I feel sad? Or why do I feel mad? Not like, I will, I rebuke you, sadness. I will choose no (laughs) sadness here. Sadness has no space in my life. As an Enneagram 4, which we all know, like the Enneagram can be used for evil. We've heard it. (laughs) But (laughs) I... Yeah, that last episode was a doozy. Yeah, I despise this idea that we can choose... Yes. emotions. And that that yes. is something that some John, people... John, are you also a four? I am. We are both fours. Oh, me too. I'm yeah. so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful and rough. But yeah, you can't yeah. choose. Yeah. You can't choose that. Like, if someone makes you upset, yes, you can choose how you use that emotion, but you can't choose the emotion. Yes. And that's what he would always say. 
Because he would always say, because yes, it's obviously true that like you can be angry and still choose not to scream at somebody. Like, of course, you can exercise control over the way that you, you can exercise a degree of control over the way that you express your emotions. And just because you're upset or, or whatever doesn't give you an excuse to to hurt somebody with your words or to yell at them or or whatever. But he would always say, your actions are a reflection of your feelings and your feelings are a reflection of your thoughts and your thoughts are a reflection of your beliefs. And so if you believe that God loves you and that nothing anybody ever says or does to you can change that and that you are perfectly holy and righteous in his sanctification of you and in um, Jesus's uh, death and resurrection for you, then you should therefore not ever cry because you're upset because if you believe that God loves you then you should feel that love and nothing that other people say should be able to contradict that feeling which means that you shouldn't be able to get upset wow I mean there's so many things that are wrong there (laughs) like not only wrong but like twisting of the teachings of Christ and how Christ interacted with people Mm -hmm. I think the scariest thing to for me is that he believed that so much so that he felt like he needed to like enforce it with everyone. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I and I think that this is something that I really struggle with and wrestle with a lot is it is just the fact that that he did believe all of this. Like I I had kind of a tough conversation with with somebody who I really love and respect and and we were talking about all of this stuff with with Pastor A and I just remember her telling t- telling me like okay L like I understand that he hurt you and that he was wrong about a lot of stuff but he loved you like anybody who knew the two of you knew how much he loved you and this was just what he thought was the best way to love you and I know that she's right like I know that he loved me and I know that this was how he thought that he should care for me. But once again, he learned all of this from Mars Hill. And so I don't know how anybody watches the crashing and burning of Mars Hill and thinks that they should just take that theology and think and take that culture and just replicate it somewhere else and that that's the right way to go about things. But also just, I mean, where is your compassion? Like, how do you time after time have these conversations with this 20-year-old girl who is clearly suffering from depression, suffering from a difficult relationship with her parents, suffering from from all of the things that she's put on her plate at school and just tell her over and over again, you are a sinner. You're doing something wrong. You're not repenting of sin. You're idolizing something. And just watching her cry and thinking, yeah, this is this is how I love her. Yeah. And I think that I think the definition of love too, I would challenge a little bit because I think love yeah. is stepping in to those spaces with you and sitting with you and wrestling with you and loving and caring you yeah. and accepting you. It's accepting you. And for him, love started once you cleaned yourself up. Yeah. It's almost like you had to earn his love. Yeah. And and so that's not really love. That's yeah. more like, I mean, that's a lot of self-contempt. Yeah. When I say that I know that he loved me, I think honestly what I really mean is that he had great affection for me. Like I think that he felt strong feelings of affection for me. But I agree with you that I think that love is a verb. And I think that if you are emotionally abusing somebody, that you're not loving them. Yeah, it's tough. And it's tough. And I think you should give yourself a lot of grace there because you did have a relationship with him. And there mm-hmm. was probably interactions that were genuine. Yeah. But then the fruit 
and the, but the the bulk of them are maybe not even the bulk of them the the ones that really stay with you are the ones where there were really hurtful and harmful things done yeah yeah and he and i had a lot in common that i think really like bonded us together like a lot of weird stuff like like we both had we both came from really big families and we both this is like a long story that's not that relevant but like we both have these really weird stories of like our mom almost choosing to have an abortion when they were pregnant with us and then not. And so that was a weird thing that we bonded over. And so there was just all of this other stuff that I, that, that we would talk about. And and that's the other thing that I want to mention is that like, it's not like it was horrible all of the time. Whenever I usually, well, actually always, whenever I would come to him with a problem that I was having or or suffering that I was experiencing, he would berate me and he would he would treat me really horribly. But there were a lot of times when like we like we had very similar senses of humor. And so we would like joke around about stuff. We liked a lot of the same music. Like there was a lot of stuff that we had in common that sort of built this foundation of our relationship. And and like you said, Jay, like I just really saw him as this spiritual father that I'd never had. You know, my my stepdad loves me very much and he raised me the best that he could. But, you know, like a lot of men his age, he's not super uh, emotionally literate. And so it's not like... I ever really talked to him that much about that kind of stuff. And and he's an atheist. And so I certainly never talked to him about, you know, about God or or my faith or or the way that God saw me. I just took it. Like I like I just thought that that's what it was like to be loved by a pastor. I because he insisted that it was. He insisted that it was his job as a pastor to quote speak truth to me. And and so I just believed him. Yeah. I mean I don't know what we do with this. And I think it's a part of everyone's story is this fact that I do believe that a lot of these pastors, many of these pastors do truly think they are doing what's right. They have convinced themselves that they are loving people well, that they are like on their A-game best pastor ever award goes to me. Mm -hmm. The thing is, is like, that's not reality. So yeah, we can't exist in in their reality. We have to exist in the real world where the way that he views love and relationship and interaction like with anyone in his congregation is twisted and wrong and abusive. That's what's so painful and gutting about spiritual abuse, right? Is it's so connected on so many levels to so many things. Yeah. Our definition of love is affected by spiritual abuse and having to parse that out all of us individually however that affected us are having to take apart like who is god what is love what is care what is healthy boundaries in a relationship what is yeah. power dynamics like what are power dynamics especially in a church setting because mm-hmm. they also like a lot of churches but especially Acts 39 churches draw you know the strict boundary between what like God sets out for us and and the way that God has designed relationships and the way that God has designed power structures and and whatnot versus the way that the world does things mm-hmm. and so maybe my relationships in the world I'm realizing as I say this out loud how twisted it is but I think in a lot of ways I started to think that my relationships quote unquote of the world, that were healthy were not healthy because they didn't look like the relationships that I had in the church because I was always told that that is what relationships are supposed to look like. 
Yeah, it's really confusing. That's just scratching the surface of why have to keep talking about spiritual abuse and the effects of it because it is just all consuming. Yeah. Gosh, I'm so sorry. So in the midst of all of that background, Mm -hmm. you Mm -hmm. take a break from school. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through that a little bit? Yeah. So take a break is a very kind way of putting it. So it was spring semester of my sophomore year that I went on this mission trip. Um, And then that summer I stayed in Fort Worth. I was interning there. And so it was, you know, over the course of the rest of the spring semester and the summer and the fall that I was having all of these conversations with Pastor A. Unsurprisingly, my mental health was just absolutely spiraling. And I was just really not doing well. I mean, I look back and like, if I had like a free hour, I would be asleep because depression is exhausting. And so you just sleep all the time. I was just like running around like a headless chicken from from church thing to school thing to to whatever. And in the midst of all of this, I am trying to talk to Pastor A about all of the things that are happening in my life. And every time I do, I just feel so much worse. And so I start to just like coil in on myself because I never wanted to talk to anybody else about what I was experiencing because whenever I talked to Pastor A about it, I just felt so much worse. And I just felt so much just like shame over the depression that I was experiencing and and the ways that I just like couldn't seem to get a handle on it. And so I wasn't talking to any of my friends about it and I wasn't reaching out to anybody about it. Eventually, things reached a breaking point in November where I just, I, I, I just, I had a mental breakdown. Like I literally just broke down. I literally drove to the airport and paid for a one-way flight in cash, and I flew back to Los Angeles. And I called my parents when I landed at LAX, and I said, "I just came home. Like I'm dropping out of school. Like I can't do it. I need you to come pick me up from the airport because." I like I just can't do it anymore. And I literally didn't tell anybody that I had left. Nobody knew that I had left until I didn't show up to work Monday morning and everybody was like, where is Elle? I just remember just being in this fog. Um, and I remember the night that I had my breakdown that there was a part of me that was like, I had all these like I had all these friends in my head who I was like you should you should just call this person and just and because I had this huge fight with my mom that triggered this this really bad depressive episode and I I had this voice in my head that was like you should call your friends you should tell them what's happening but I just remember thinking like no like I can't talk to somebody about this like I can't tell another person what I'm experiencing who's just going to tell me that I'm sinning and I have uh, sin that I need to repent of and I'm idolizing something and I'm not leaning on the Lord to care for me and I'm not believing that he cares for me because if I was doing any of those things, I wouldn't be experiencing this depression. And so I didn't call any of my friends. I just I just drove to the airport and I just flew home. And I remember after I landed in LA, just just being in this fog and just like not knowing what I had just done or really understanding why I had done it or what my life was going to look like then. Uh, (laughs) A few days after I landed in LA, uh, somebody told Pastor A what had happened, and he called me and he said, what's going on? And I said, "Um, well, I had a mental breakdown and I dropped out of school. And he said, okay, 
well, you know, you didn't show up to work on Monday. So I think that you need to call your boss um, and apologize for skipping work. You know, your friends are really worried about you. I think that you should call them and apologize uh, for just leaving in the middle of the night um, and making them be scared for you. You know, I just I think that I think that there's some repenting that you need to do. Uh, that was his response. Yeah. Here's an extra oh dose of shame. Yep. To all the shame that you already, you were under so much shame that you didn't feel like you could even call them in the first place. But then Mm -hmm. also let's add some more shame to that, that you didn't call them. Yeah. Yeah. And I... I'm so sorry. I was was interning at this nonprofit that was a Christian nonprofit um, that was very meaningful to me and continues to be really meaningful to me. (laughs) I just remember calling my boss because, because they were the first ones to realize that I had had this mental breakdown because I didn't show up to work on Monday. And I remember that one of my, like what, what happened is that one of my bosses, like, like none of my coworkers knew where I was. And so one of my bosses called my school and was like, cause I was living on campus and they were like, can you check in on this girl? Like she didn't show up to work today. And then that somehow got back around to me. And so I reached out to them and I was like, yes, sorry. I had a mental breakdown and dropped out of school. And I remember when I called them and told them that I felt that I needed to to apologize and to repent for having just not shown up to work on Monday when they were expecting me to complete whatever tasks they had set aside for me, that all of them were like, no, no, we're sorry that we were not there for you and that you, like, we didn't make ourselves available to you for us to care for you when you clearly were not doing okay. I remember that I I had actually seen one. This was a Sunday. And I remember I had actually seen one of my bosses like earlier that day. I ran into her somewhere. When I talked to her, she was crying. She was like, I, I wish that you had told me when you saw me that you were experiencing this so I could have helped you. And I didn't say it at the time because I didn't really have the words for it. But I was just like, I couldn't talk to you about it. I couldn't talk to anybody about it because everything in me just told me that if I talked to somebody about it, I was just going to feel worse. Um, But yeah, so all of my bosses at that nonprofit who did really love Jesus and who did really love me were just like, no, you don't have anything to repent of. Like, if anything, we have apologies to make for not caring for you well enough while you were under our care. So... Oh, my gosh. I'm glad that at least there was some wisdom and, like, true care and concern for you and your well-being in this point of your life. This is just so horrific. So how did you stay connected with your church family, um, and did you come back at any point? Yeah, so this is where things really started to unravel. So basically, so I dropped out in, like, December, and, you know, a few weeks go by— Thanksgiving happens. Um, and over time, I start to just, you know, feel better because I'm not constantly talking to somebody who's making me feel worse. And I'm also just like not doing all of the things that are stressing me out. Like I'm not working 20 hours a week and also taking 18 hours in school and also leading a bunch of different clubs. Were you able to connect that Pastor A not speaking like into your life at this point as much was part of what was making you feel better? No. Okay. No, just curious. Not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if anything, that hurt more that he wasn't reaching out to me more. Mm-hmm. And so I started to feel better. And I, the way that I saw it was that I clearly just had too much on my plate. You know, I wasn't 
taking care of my mental illness. I wasn't going to therapy like I should have been. I was taking too many classes and I was doing too many things and I, I had clearly just just burned out. Um, and so I just needed to take the rest of the semester off, just take a break, um, and that I was going to go back to school in the spring and be fine. Um, my parents did not see it that way. They said, you clearly need more help than that. And so they did not allow me to return to school in the spring. And since they were paying for my school, that was a decision that they got to make. And so I just stayed home in Los Angeles. And at that point, were you able to like see a doctor about this stuff at all? Or was that just off the table for you? No. So the church was very anti-medication. They were sort of in the middle on therapy. They were definitely like, well, first you should try biblical counseling, which I did. Like I did go to biblical counseling at one point and it didn't help because my issue was not spiritual. Their attitude was sort of like, I mean, I guess like if it's really bad enough, you can see like a, you know, like a secular therapist, but, but the thing's got to be real bad for, for that to happen. And so they didn't like actively discourage it, but it, the, the subtext was clear enough and I wanted their approval desperately enough that I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to go to therapy. And then when I was home in LA, I did go to therapy and I, man, to this day, Like That was my only saving grace for those five months that I spent in LA. I had the best therapist of all time. She was so incredible. She helped me so much. I doubt that like this will ever make its way to her. But Dr. Angela, if you're somehow listening to this, thank you for like literally saving my life. You're the only reason I made it through that time. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, this is something that I talked to my parents that I have talked to my parents about and that my mom and I talked about a lot when we went to counseling. This this was a bad call um, on their part. Um, I I really do understand where they were coming from and what they thought they were doing. But the last thing that somebody who is really suffering from depression needs is to be taken away from all of the things that give her a reason to get out of bed every day and to take her away from her community. Like, I cannot even express to you what it was like to go from, you know, being like having leadership positions in all these clubs and having all of these friends and having just a really vibrant church life and school life and and social life to living in my parents' house and working part-time as a tutor at Study Hut and going to therapy once a week. And that was my life. Honestly, what it really reminded me of was like when COVID happened and everybody's lives just shut down and you went from having a life to not having a life in two weeks. Like that's really what it was like. So if you remember what what that was like when that happened, like that was kind of the second time that I'd experienced that because it really felt like my entire life had been stripped away from me. And so in that time, my friends from the church it were incredible to me in that time. Um, you know, they they texted me pretty regularly. My like small group leader at the time called me once a week to check on me and to talk to me and to pray for me. But it was total radio silence from Pastor A. Um, I did not hear from him that entire time. And I was incredibly hurt by that. But I just told myself, you know, it's a big church. There are not a lot of pastors there. He's got a lot of other people to deal with. I guess, you know, If I'm not there talking to him every Sunday, he doesn't have the time to call me or to check up on me. And I did go back to Fort Worth twice in that time. I went once for a wedding and I don't remember the other time I went, I think just like for fun. And I saw him and looking back, it was very clear that when I saw him, he had like forgotten that I existed until I was standing right in front of him again. 
And he would say, how are you doing? And I would say, uh, not great. And he would once again tell me that, oh, God, the 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 comparison that he used to make all the time, the two all the time, the two times that I talked to him during this time when I went back to Fort Worth was Paul when he was imprisoned, like sharing the gospel to the prisoners. And he was like, you have this unparalleled opportunity to minister to your parents. You are at home with them for months at a time, and you have nothing to do. You don't have any friends there. You don't have anything going on. You have this incredible opportunity to share the gospel with them and to be Christ to them. And that's what you need to focus on. Not the fact that I had all of this hurt and pain against them because they, oh yeah. And then I was like, man, they pulled me out of school and I really don't think they should have done that. And he was like, well, like, oh, and this is the other thing. I actually don't know if I've ever told anybody about this, but my mom knew that I had this relationship with this pastor. And after I dropped out of school, Without, unbeknownst to me, she called the church and she asked if she could speak to this pastor and she asked him like what he thought she should do. And despite knowing that she, that she was not a believer, despite knowing that she and I did not have a good relationship at the time, his response to her was, you're the parent. God has given you biblical authority to, to do whatever you think is right. So whatever you think is right, that's what you should do. So then when I would go back to Fort Worth and talk to him, that's what he would tell me too. He was like, they're your parents. Like the Bible says that, you know, God ordains who he puts in authority over us and God has ordained to, to put your mom and dad in authority over you. And so it's your responsibility um, to be an ambassador to Christ and to be obedient to them um, and to just show Christ to them. You can't be upset that you're there. You're an adult. You are yeah. an adult. You're not a mm-hmm. five-year-old kid yeah. getting a, a, that they called the principal of their kindergartner's class. You're an adult. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have agency. You have legal autonomy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, just putting that out there for everyone. You, it wasn't like you were like a 12-year-old. No, I was 20, 21. Yeah. So eventually you do get back to TCU. So you're back to you get up you back to TCU. Yeah. The church things are different, right? Yeah, things are super different. Um so something that I didn't mention um earlier is that when you talked about a couple of sermons that Pastor Jay had given early on, um one of the sermons that he gave early on that honestly really had an impact on me at the time was shortly after I started at the church, they did this like almost two year long series on Genesis, which honestly to this day was like hugely foundational for my faith. I feel like maybe I should go back and listen to a couple of those episodes and see if I still align with a lot of the theology. Um, But at the time it was very just, yeah, foundational to me. He did like a 10-week series um, on just Genesis 1 and like issues of creation. Um, he talked about, you know, the Omago Day. And so he talked about like abortion stuff. But then he also talked about racism, which that's a whole other thing is that the church does a very good job of saying that they care a lot about racism and like racial reconciliation, which is another reason that I thought that they were like a really good church. But anyway, so one of the sermons that he gave in this time was he gave a sermon on homosexuality, which like obviously I know is like a very controversial topic in pretty much all Christian circles. And so they are not an affirming church. They are definitely of the belief that same-sex attraction is sin. But I remember him giving that sermon 
And he opened the sermon by telling the story of this young man that he knew who was gay and who like attempted suicide because of it, because he thought that like he was some sort of, of aberration or mistake by God because he was gay. And so Pastor Jay said, you know, when we talk about this issue, we have to remember that we are not talking about some like hypothetical theology or political talking points. Like we are talking about real people. And, you know, he does go on to preach that he believes that same-sex attraction is sin, but he says, you know, but like, here are all of the other things that God says that you should be stoned for. And, you know, it's like disrespecting your parents and stealing and like a bunch of other stuff that a lot of people do. And so he was like, all of you are just as guilty of sin as anybody who experiences same-sex attraction. Homophobia is very sinful as well. Like you, If you have ever experienced, if you've ever felt homophobia, you have to repent of that. And so... At this point in my life, my theology on the subject has changed. I am definitely in the affirming camp. But honestly, I still look back and think that for somebody to give a sermon saying that like same-sex attraction is sinful, it was about as compassionate as you could be about it. And I, in a lot of ways, I still really respect the way that he delivered that sermon. But I remember that I came back in the fall and he was giving a sermon on something. And uh, he just like goes off on this tangent about trans people. And he says, you know, the idea that you can just pick and choose whatever gender you want is unbiblical and it's unscientific and it's stupid. And I just remembered sitting there in that pew and just being so taken aback because first of all, that's just a horrible thing to say. And also, uh, like we cannot get into this because I'll talk about it forever. But the way that Christians just refuse to listen to trans people when they talk about their actual experience and just continue to use the rhetoric of like picking your gender is so insulting and frustrating to me. But the fact that he said it was stupid, I was so taken aback. I was like, I cannot believe that you just said that. And I remembered that that week I, I was still in college. And so I was talking to my like small group, which was a college group of girls. And most of the girls in the group were younger than me. They hadn't been there a few years before when, when Pastor Jay gave that uh, sermon on homosexuality. And they were very uncomfortable with what he had said that Sunday about trans people being stupid. And I told them, I said, yeah, you know, it's just really shocking to me because I remember a few years ago, Pastor Jay gave the sermon on, on homosexuality and it was just so much nicer than this. And, and I told them about all of the things that he said in that, in that sermon. And I remember one of them saying, I mean, where was that guy on Sunday? And I totally agreed with them. Like, I really felt like some sort of shift had happened. And and Pastor Jay had just become a lot more intense about sort of like the culture war stuff. Yeah, just meaner and more arrogant as well. And this is actually something that I recently, I had a conversation with with a friend of mine who still goes to that church and who was much closer to the whole leadership team than I ever really was. I was really close to Pastor A and, and one or two of the other deacons, but this woman had a much closer relationship with a lot of the staff. And she told me that she doesn't really think necessarily that the problem was with Pastor A or with Pastor J, but really that it was the dynamic that Pastor A and Pastor J had together where they just really brought out the worst in each other. And I don't know if I believe that, but there's certainly moments where it seems to make a lot of sense because 
I, for the most part, felt like Pastor A and Pastor J were pretty different. But in that moment, I definitely saw a lot of a lot of Pastor A in him. Well, here's the thing. Uh, it doesn't really matter because being qualified biblically to be a pastor. Yes. You don't get a you don't get a pass because you had someone with you that was like your buddy that encouraged you to handle things the wrong way. Like that's disqualifying. Yeah. So it, mm-hmm. in their own right they're both disqualified and should not be being yes. be leading churches. Yes. And this is something that I, oh, I get so frustrated about this because I agree with you so strongly. And I like was kind of having an argument with a friend of mine recently about all of this. And she said something to me along the lines of like, you know, I mean, like, yes, the Bible says that, you know, there are this and this qualifications to be a pastor, but like, there's also grace. And, you know, honestly, like I've committed sin that like, if I ever confessed would probably disbar me from the office of elder. And he said, okay, well, first of all, you're not an elder. So you're not held. So you're not held to that high of a standard. But I said, second of all, I asked I said, have you ever abused anybody with your sin? And she said, no. And I said, then it's not the same. We have to stop making this sort of qualification that, oh, we're all sinners and and pastors are imperfect people. Because first of all, regardless of whether or not you're a pastor, no abuse of any kind is ever okay. It's unbiblical. It's of the devil. It's terrible. There are no excuses for it. And then when you add in the fact that you are in a position of authority, and then when you add in the fact that the Bible very clearly calls pastors to a higher level of account, there is no excuse. This has been part one of Elle's story. Part two is already available, so be sure not to miss the conclusion. I'm Jonna Harris, and this has been the Bodies Behind the Bus podcast. Thank you.